You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go, it's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know, goodbye Piccadilly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 141. This week is our third episode covering the Entente Spring Offensives of 1917, and in this episode, the attacks will begin. We are going to break down the attacks into two areas. The first will be on the British area of the front, an area that will include the battles of Arras and Vimy Ridge. The second part of the episode will focus on the French side of the attack on the Chem de Dame. Here, the French army would hurl themselves against the German defenses. In this area, the Germans would not be surprised at all, which they were in Arras, and their defense will be a surprise for the French. This episode will only cover the first day of the French attack. That will still give us plenty to talk about. The events after the first 24 hours of the attack will be our topic for next episode, as they will be quite important and deserve their own moment in the spotlight. We start now in the north, where the British were putting their primary effort for early 1917 into their attacks in Arras. These attacks would take place over a stretch of front that would be 20 kilometers wide, and on that front, Haig had assembled three armies, the 1st, 3rd, and 5th. This would include the Canadians at Vimy Ridge, and I should note up front here that I will not be focusing on Vimy Ridge very much today. If you want a lot more information specifically about Vimy Ridge, I did a special episode strictly on that topic back in episode 114, and I would direct you there. In Arras, the three British armies would be facing off against two German armies, the 6th and the 2nd. This put the Germans at a pretty hefty disadvantage. With the 6th Army, there would be a total of 6 divisions, being the target of 14 British divisions. It would would have been far worse if the Germans had not brought in more troops after noticing the British buildup of men and material before the attack. One issue that the Germans would have is that these divisions were not at their top form, with some of them still recovering from the events of late 1916. Even though they were still rebuilding, it was believed that it was necessary to keep them at the front due to demands of other areas, like on the French front to the south, which was getting many other reserve divisions. While being heavily outnumbered was never ideal, at this point the Germans were pretty much used to it. It was pretty much business as usual. 
The British would begin their artillery preparations five days before the attack, with 2,800 guns participating. This put the concentration at a gun for every 12 yards of front. During these opening days, they would fire about 2.6 million shells. I know at times, numbers this large are really difficult to wrap our heads around. So in comparison, this is about a million more than the preparations for the Somme in 1916, which was the previous largest British artillery bombardment. I think the best way to determine the results of these bombardments is to look at the experience of the recipients, the German soldiers in the trenches during the first few weeks of April 1917. Here is Uber Lieutenant Scheer of the 1st Battalion Field Artillery Regiment 767. From April 3, 1917, the artillery battle, which had been gaining momentum for several days, increased yet again in intensity. It was striking that on this day, there was a heavy bombardment by guns of all calibers throughout the rear area, special attention being devoted to approach routes, build-up areas, trenches, batteries, observation posts, and the depression by the railway line, which housed the Habsburg Artillery Command Post. Only through total commitment of all ranks was it possible, sometimes by telephone, mostly by runners, to maintain links between the batteries and the group, and contact from the group to the regiment. During the night of April 8th and 9th, the artillery fire increased constantly in weight. Then, around 5.30 a.m., jump fire of an intensity we had never experienced on the Somme came suddenly throughout the area from the front line to the railway. Use of the last of our signal flares brought down swift defensive fire. This had some effect on the initial assault, but could do nothing to stop the immense masses of British artillery following up. End quote. And here is Lieutenant Hengst of the Bavarian Motor Mortar Company 149. There was no longer any doubt we were facing a serious situation. During the night of April 5th to 6th, the unpleasant harassing fire was suddenly accompanied by heavy gas shoots, the effects of which were enhanced by an almost complete absence of wind. Very soon, the entire area reaching back well beyond the gun lines was cloaked in a thick fog. Both men and animals could only move masked up, which made the supply of rations and other stores extremely difficult. During the, ninth, uh, during the night of 8-9 April, the positions were shelled and gassed for five hours continuously, forcing the garrison to mask up and exhausting the protective potential of their gas masks. From around 3 a.m., the shelling reduced in intensity, then between 3.15 and 5 a.m. ceased altogether. The reason was unclear, because fire came down with undiminished intensity on neighboring divisions, but the pause was extremely welcome. It enabled the large number of wounded and gas-poisoning cases to be evacuated, food, drink, and ammunition to be brought up, and collapsed dugout entrances to be cleared out." End quote. I should note here that it's important to remember that gas masks during the First World War, and later, would have a limited shelf life, so they could only withstand gas for so long before they lost their effectiveness. This was an important part of artillery planning, because if you could overwhelm uh, the enemy's gas masks, they would be in real trouble. By the time that the attack would begin, the artillery fire had covered the area in thick clouds of smoke and dust, including clouds of smoke that the British used to suppress the German artillery, which we've already discussed. Houses and villages behind the front were heaps of rubble, and the German positions were not in good shape. They had not been in the best shape even before the bombardment, and now they were basically destroyed. 
This was mostly due to a combination of the British fire and the wet weather in the spring, causing many German trenches to completely collapse, including many communication trenches, which meant any attempts to move reinforcements or supplies forward either had to be done at night or in the full view of the British fire. The British had also at least partially fixed their issues from 1916, and focused far more on counter-battery fire for this attack, giving the German guns a heavy beat. The infantry attack began at 5.30 on April 9th, which just so happened to be Easter Monday. It was raining and there was some sleet mixed in with that, but in general the attack would go off quite well. On Vimy Ridge, the Canadians would advance four kilometers. The 3rd Army, commanded by General Allenby, who we will meet again later in our Middle Eastern episodes, advanced three kilometers, and other units experienced similar success. Here is a lengthy quote from the First World War by John Keegan. The first day of the Battle of Arras was a British triumph. In a few hours, the German front had penetrated to a depth of between one and three miles. 9,000 prisoners were taken, few casualties suffered, and a way apparently cleared towards open country. The success of the Canadians was sensational. In a single bound, the awful bare, broken slopes of Vimy Ridge, on which the French had bled to death in thousands in 1915, was taken. The summit ground gained, and down the precipitous eastern reverse slope, the whole Dois plain, crammed with German artillery and reserves, lay open to the victor's gaze. We could see the German gunners working their guns, then limbering up and moving back. Transport wagons were in full retreat with hundreds of fugitives from the ridge. There appeared to be nothing at all to prevent our breaking through, wrote a Canadian lieutenant. To summarize, after the first days, things were going quite well for the British, Canadian, Australian, and New Zealand troops. And now the question became what to do next. On the other side of the line, the situation was quite different. When reading accounts of the defense, one thing is very clear. After the initial attack, the situation at the front was almost completely unknown to those behind the lines. All that they could do was to continue to send troops forward and hope for the best. This was complicated by the fact that, since this was a first attack against the new German defensive tactics, the Germans had not fully understood how to utilize them yet. They'd really not been battle-tested. The most common mistake that was made was keeping units designated for counterattacks too far behind the front, robbing them of the ability to quickly hit back at the attackers before they solidified their positions. As the day progressed, the situation became more and more desperate for the German defenders. They were simply running out of men on hand who were capable of fighting. This resulted in troops that normally would not have been defending the front lines being called upon to do so. One example of this was the Bavarian 14th Motor Company. Obviously, the men of this company were not infantrymen, but those that were not deployed in the front lines when the attack began soon found themselves with little to do. Their guns, manned by other men from the company, had been captured or destroyed in the forward positions, so the commander made the decision to help the infantry in any way that his men could. Here is Lieutenant Henstig again uh, to talk about that. At this time, he was the ranking officer in the company. In this situation, those elements of the company that were located in the rear and which were to have conducted the relief had no realistic option but to make themselves available to the division as a reserve. Led by me, the company commander had been sent away on sick leave a week earlier and strengthened with a few infantry orderlies. Altogether, about 60 men were dispatched where the brigade headquarters were supposed to have been located. The march was fraught with difficulty. Some of those who set off with us that morning must have felt that they were unlikely to live until evening. 
This was not even close to the only instance where any man at hand was thrown into the fence. Here is a good general assessment of the situation after the first round of fighting from the German army in the spring offensives of 1917, Arras, the Aisne, and the Champagne by Jack Sheldon. These early days of fighting east of Arras represented a severe setback to the German army. Altogether, on an 18-kilometer front, the British had broken through up to a depth of about 6 kilometers. Seven German divisions had been so worn down that they had to be relieved. Losses to date were calculated at 23,000, 16,000 of whom were missing. 233 guns, 98 of them large caliber, had been lost or destroyed, as had innumerable grenade launchers and machine guns together with a mass of much-needed trench stores and equipment which had also fallen into enemy hands. While the first day was quite the calamity for the Germans, they would quickly begin to recover their composure. They were assisted in this by two phenomena which were completely out of their control, or basically they got lucky. The first was that the British were now faced with the difficult job of pulling their guns and ammunition forward to continue the advance, a task that was never easy on the battlefields of the First World War. They were also assisted by this second problem that the British were having, which I'm just going to let Major Graham of the 15th Scottish Division explain. Their weather has, of course, been against us. Continual storms of snow, hail, and rain do not make it any easier to move guns across country, which has undergone a five days intense bombardment. Albeit, we got them somehow by relays with 12 to 14 horses in the guns and the gunners harnessed to the wagons. These delays meant that the Germans had time to rush in reinforcements, or to get the reinforcements that were present but too far away from the front to instead be right behind the lines. This meant that the continued attacks at places like the village of Bulacor, which went on for two days on April 10th and 11th, were not nearly as successful as earlier efforts. The slowdown in the attack caused Haig to call a break in the attack on April 14th to await Neville's attack on the Chem de Dom, which was scheduled to begin just a few days later. This let the artillery fully move forward and into new positions, so that they were ready to support the next phase of the attack. Once the attack restarted, it would continue for weeks, not being fully shut down until early June. This lengthy series of attacks were launched in support of Nivelle, but also because Haig did think he was making real progress, even if the advances on the grounds were not spectacular. It would be during these weeks that most of the British casualties would be sustained. By the time that the last attacks were launched in Arras, the British had already shifted focus to the north and into Flanders, where they were preparing for their attacks on Messines and Ypres. The casualties on both sides were heavy for the British attack, with the British suffering around 150,000 casualties and the Germans between 85,000 and 120,000. These numbers were quite high, but certainly not out of the realm of normality for Western Front battles during the war. For these casualties, the British had gained some new positions, with Vimy Ridge being far and away the most important. The British may not have known it at the time, but the capture of Vimy Ridge would be a thorn in the side of the Germans when they were preparing for their 1918 offensives. Other territory was gained in the attack, with most areas of the front advancing between 5 and 6 kilometers by the end of the attack. Much of this area held little strategic value, though, and Vimy was certainly the feather in Haig's cap. But the attacks were also thought necessary to provide assistance to the French, especially after their early disasters, which we'll talk about here shortly. These two reasons went a long way to smoothing over other concerns about the failure of the attack as a whole. 
On the German side, their analysis of the battle identified three major issues with their opening day defenses. The first was that the troops that were sent forward to defend were simply too worn down, and there was not enough of them, but those that were present fought as hard as could be expected. The second problem was that there was not enough artillery and ammunition available to meet a determined attack. Finally, the reserves that were supposed to hit the attackers at their point of greatest weakness were instead too far away to take advantage of that weakness, and therefore could not properly assist the hard-pressed frontline troops. Overall, the German defense had been decent enough, and it somewhat proved the viability of the elastic defense system, especially after the first day, when reserves were properly positioned along the front. While the Battle of Arras was the primary point of effort for the British, it would, and it would cause hundreds of thousands of casualties all told, it was just a supporting attack. It was now time to head south and to the main event, the French attack on the Chem de Dame. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. We spent a good amount of time on the planning for the Shem de Dom attacks last week, but I mostly forgot to talk about total numbers. Now we have a chance to rectify that mistake. In the three armies, the French were using 53 total divisions, with somewhere around 1.2 million men in total. On the German side, they would have 21 divisions, so the French would have a bit over a 2 to 1 advantage. Remember that this is actually a quite small advantage in terms of World War I attacks. The artillery fire would begin on April 1st, but it would not be until April 5th that the preparations would kick into high gear. Over the next three days, the fire mounted until on the 9th it plateaued, with almost every French gun raining fire down on the German positions and gun batteries. This high-intensity fire would continue for a week. Much like in previous attacks, there were several instances where the French artillery would suddenly stop firing, so that the Germans thought that the attack might be starting, then the French artillery would start again. The goal of these feints was to draw out the German defenders from their hiding places, so that they would be hit when the artillery fire resumed. 
Jules Nenet of the 89th Infantry would write of this time that, quote, for several days now, the amount of noise from the front line has been steadily increasing. The roads are full of soldiers in blue and yellow, colonial troops in khaki, all marching off in the same direction, along with whole columns of artillery and lorries filled with ammunitions and stores. We watch these huge convoys pass by, shake our heads, and think the Boches are going to cop it, end quote. The final few days before the attack were miserable for both sides. The weather was certainly not cooperative, with freezing temperatures, heavy rain, and even some snow. This made life difficult in the trenches, with men being constantly wet and cold. These conditions were particularly hard on the French colonial troops, who were not used to the cold temperatures. The weather went beyond just discomfort, though, and also affected other aspects of the plan. Here is General Mischler. During the preparation and the day of the attack, the observation of artillery fire, either by aerial observers or by ground observers, was impeded considerably by very unfavorable atmospheric conditions. All of these conditions were, of course, harder for the Germans. In the lead-up to the attack, one German general would give this as his order of the day on April 11th. The time has come for decisive combat. The strengthening of the enemy fire tells us of an imminent attack on our trenches. Our braves from the Rhineland, Hanover, and of course the guard regiments will fight dearly for the positions. I trust that not one man will give himself up. On April 15th, the French officers received their final orders. In these orders, they were told that the attack would begin at 6 a.m. the next day. The men were told the exact time of the attack, and they tried to get as much sleep as possible before the 3.30 a.m. wake-up time the next morning. Nights before an attack were always tense. Many men took the time to write a last letter home. Many also tried to sleep with varying degrees of success. The last order that many of them would receive came from General Nivelle, which was delivered on the day of the attack, which read, The hour has come. Courage and confidence. Long live France. When the attack began at 6 a.m. on April 16th, the 6th and 5th armies would encounter somewhat uneven resistance. In many places, the French troops had to cross the river and then advance up the hillside on the other bank, before they even got to the German lines. Waiting for them was the German wire, which was at least partially intact, and then more important, German machine guns. The machine guns were spread out into shell holes, strong points, and others were just in the exits to some of the abandoned mines that the Germans were using for shelters. All of them were able to rain down fire on the advancing French troops. Even as they fired on the advancing French, many Germans could not help but be awed by what they were seeing. Grenadier Guards to our front, they came on in endless masses. Our machine guns fired as fast as they could. Our rifle barrels never cooled down. Our stocks of ammunition shrank more and more, and we had to resort to collecting the grenade sacks and ammunition pouches of the dead and wounded. Our stick grenades saved us repeatedly when the fighting was close so that we could not use our rifles. During the afternoon, the reduced lines of attackers began to dig in, sneaking cover from the murderous defense we were putting up. But even though the slopes of our front were strewn with dead and wounded Frenchmen, in their new blue uniforms, fresh waves of attackers arrived to swell their ranks. As the French tried to continue their advance, the machine gun fire was joined by the artillery. Many of these artillery pieces had not been hit by French counter-battery fire, and were well positioned to hit the French troops as they advanced. One issue was the rate that the French infantry was expected to advance. This expectation drove the movement of the creeping barrage, a critical piece of the attack plan that would suppress the German machine guns as the French advanced. However, in this case, that is not what occurred, with the infantry rapidly falling behind the artillery fire. 
If you remember, some of the French units were expected to advance a kilometer an hour, and as soon as they fell behind their artillery, it would run away from them very quickly. When this problem was combined with other German defenses, the high rate of officer casualties in the forward units, and the resulting breakdown in command and control, the offensive began to slow down before it really even got going. One set of soldiers that the French had put a lot of faith into were the colonial troops, many of which were Senegalese soldiers, although that nationality gets falsely applied to a lot of French African colonial soldiers. While much was expected out of these men, they were simply not put in a position to succeed. Here's Edward Spears, a French officer, to describe the situation. We had been taught to believe that theirs would be a headlong assault, a wild, savage onrush. Instead, paralyzed with cold, with chocolate faces tinged with gray, they reached the assault trenches with the utmost difficulty. Most of them were too exhausted even to eat the rations that they carried, and their hands were too cold to fix bayonets. They advanced when ordered to do so, carrying rifles under their arms like umbrellas, fighting what protection they could for their frozen fingers in the folds of their cloaks. They got quite a long way before the German machine guns mowed them down. Here is the commander of the 2nd Colonial Corps, who would describe what would be considered a successful attack. The rolling barrage is unleashed almost immediately, and steadily moves ahead of the first waves, which it quickly ceases to protect. A few machine guns on the plateau did not halt the infantrymen, who were able to descend the northern side of the plateau to the edge of the steep slope descending into the valley of the river. There, they were welcomed and fixed in place by deadly fire of numerous machine guns, but located on the reverse side of the slope, outside of the reach of our projectiles, had remained undamaged. The problems for the colonial troops was much the same as in other places. The barrage just got away from them too quickly. As the hours ticked by, there were efforts to adjust fire, messages were sent by artillery officers from the forward units, and the artillery was brought back to the area they were supposed to bombard 90 minutes after the attack started. But even this did not prove to be close enough. They were, they were brought back to the 30-minute line. So hours after the attack had started, the artillery was back once again on the line they were supposed to be firing at 30 minutes in. The 5th Army would have greater success than the 6th, but that did not mean that they found the attack to be easy, just maybe a little less hard. When the troops of the 5th Army reached the German front lines, they were often forced to fight seemingly never-ending series of close-range brawls, with grenades and hand-to-hand weapons being the primary tools. Even when the French were successful in pushing the Germans back from their front lines, which was somewhat infrequent to begin with, the elastic nature of the German defenses would then come into play. First, the German machine guns would try and pin the French into place, then the German artillery would rain fire down upon the exposed French as they tried to continue their push forward. As the Frenchmen and colonials struggled forward, the German resistance would become only stronger instead of weaker. Then the French infantry would finally lose touch with their artillery and the advance would be over. As they waited in their new positions, the German artillery would only get stronger, and the machine guns continued to appear in greater numbers. Just when they were completely out of strength and they could do nothing more, they would be hit by German counterattacks. For many units, these counterattacks would push them back, losing most of the gains that they had fought so hard for. Many units were pushed all the way back to their start lines. The 5th Army was also joined by French tanks, so it's worth spending just a bit of time to discuss the performance of these vehicles during the attack. Here are part of the orders that were given to the tank forces before it began. 
Tanks and infantry remain in close association during the combat, but the tanks do not wait for the infantry if they see any opportunity of going forward. Once the attack has opened, the tanks advance on their objectives and halt only when they encounter obstacles which they cannot cross with the equipment available to them. When our infantry catch up with a tank which is detained in this way, they must do everything possible to help it overcome the obstruction. If the infantry are held up by enemy resistance before the tanks are on the scene, they must lie down and wait for the tanks to intervene. The tanks will roll through them and on against the enemy, suppressing hostile fire. The tanks would set off with the infantry, but almost instantly they would begin to have problems. One of the bigger problems for the Schneider tanks was their tendency to get stuck nose down in the trenches. To prevent this issue, the tanks were forced to rely on the infantry to fill in trenches so that they could drive over them. But filling the trenches was a slow process, with some tanks waiting up to an hour for it to be completed. This just in general slowed down the advance, but also made the tanks extremely vulnerable to German artillery fire. One tank officer would describe what it was like to be under artillery fire while in his tank like this. There are some things that you'll never forget, sights which will be forever engraved in your mind despite all the horror already burned there. The tank on the left suddenly becomes an inferno. In front of it is the shell which set it alight. Two torches get out, two torches make a mad frantic dash towards the rear, two torches which twist which roll on the ground. A tank burns on the right, another one behind, and on the left it looks as if somebody is setting our line of steel alight with a row of floodlights. Overall, the usage of tanks was very costly, with 52 tanks lost to enemy fire or the terrain, and 28 lost after breaking down. There were a few successes, uh, with some tanks advancing up to 5 kilometers, but these successes were too spread out and localized to have any real effect on the wider attack. While their first attempt had been a failure, the first French attack was still more successful than the British attack had been back in, April, in September 1916, so that's something, I guess. The French would learn from these failures, and there would be more French armored attacks later in the war. While we, of course, know what was happening at the front, there was a bit of a fog of a war back at headquarters. Nivelle and his staff were forced to just wait for information to begin to trickle back. During this time, the atmosphere at headquarters was very subdued and nervous. There was not a lot of solid information at high command until around 10.30, when the first official report arrived. This report had been preceded by rumors and scattered information that the attack was not going as well as it hoped. What became obvious with the first report, and then others that would follow, was discouraging, and exactly what Neville had hoped and believed would not happen. As wave after wave of French troops were sent forward, with the objective being to exploit the gains made by previous waves, they were instead sucked into attempts to take the first set of German positions. This instantly began to throw off the entire timetable, and it resulted in an attack that was not a bold thrust through the German lines, but instead an attack that devolved quickly into what previous attacks had been, just a mass of men struggling to make any forward progress while suffering heavy casualties. What happened at the front for the rest of the day did not make the situation any better. The day ended with no French soldiers having gained more than a few kilometers of ground, an impressive failure, even by Western Front standards. And for these gains, the French had paid a high price. Some regimental and battalion-level units pretty much ceased to exist, with some divisions like the 2nd Division of the 5th Army suffering 3,700 casualties. To make matters worse, the French had not properly planned for the number of wounded that they were now experiencing. They had, after all, planned for a great success, and the number of field hospitals and medical facilities that were available were woefully inadequate for what they were experiencing. 
a parliamentary deputy serving in the front, would describe why this was the case. Why? Like everything else, it was because in the offensive, we'd planned for everything but defeat. We began from the idea that the offensive would be a success. That's why nothing had been organized, no evacuation routes, too few aid posts, impossible to get the field ambulances to the wounded. Back at Nivelle's headquarters, even his extreme optimism could only do so much to dress up the reports that were coming in at the end of the first day. Remember, he had promised great successes within 48 hours, and things were not looking good halfway through that time limit. So he did the only thing he could. He planned to continue the attack. It was believed that the German defenses were weaker across from the 5th Army, or at the very least, they had done better on the first day. And so that would be the area that would get the most support. Nivelle hoped that he could contain news of how the attack was going, but in this he was unsuccessful. By the next day, information had already made its way back to Paris, and to Haig, who would write in his diary, quote, Nothing seems to have been gained. Reports were, at first, very favorable. Later, it was said, enemy counterattacked very strongly. Ground gained was lost. French claimed 10,000 prisoners, but the attitude of French officers attached to my staff makes me think that they are not quite satisfied and that the much-talked-of victory has not been gained by the French up to this date. Nivelle would try to maintain a shroud of secrecy as long as possible, and even on April 17th, Haig would still be somewhat in the dark as to exactly what was happening. I could get no details from the French as to the results of today's fighting, which is always a bad sign, and I fear that things are going badly with their offensive. For the moment, the first day of the attack was over, and it had been a great failure. But soon, the French would try again. I hope you will join me next episode, as the Nivelle offensive continues, and then very abruptly, ends. It's a long, long way to Tipperary.